We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Willerskin uh, on the board, playing the uh, Beatles. Obla di, obla da. Reason is top 200 singers of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Paul McCartney coming in at 26. Paul McCartney there singing a song with the Beatles, uh, which has a pretty interesting history to it. Uh, and I was going to tell you, Will, this off air, but um, uh, John Lennon absolutely hated this song. And as a result, it was never released as a single in the United States or in the UK. But everywhere else that it was released, it... Uh, you know, it, it had great success. And I think when it eventually was released in the United States, I can't find it here fast enough, but I don't even think it broke the top 30. Oh, no. Isn't that bizarre? And it's, and it's, and it's bizarre because, uh, obviously now it's like one of the most popular songs that the Beatles have. And Paul McCartney still does the song on stage whenever, um, whenever he performs. So, uh, it's amazing that a song that was never distributed as a single and think of all the, like at one time, time the Beatles had the whole top five of Billboard's uh, Hot 100, the top five singles uh, during the early 60s. So this song, as popular as it was, never even released in the United States uh, and uh, in the UK as a single. Uh, instead, it was found on the White Album. So Thanks, there you go. John. Now you know the rest of the story, and uh, anybody that's ever been to a wedding, I don't know, maybe this is just old me, but uh, when I was a kid and had my own DJ company, um, uh, every single wedding, I think every single baseball banquet, every single hockey banquet, that song was played, so there you go. Now you know the rest of the story. All right, um, there you go. John Lennon hated it. But then again, another weird Beatles story that we found out when we were, maybe we were, I don't know, I don't know what we were playing John Lennon, was that Revolution, he wanted the slow version, and the band went, no, you need to torque this up. We got Zeppelin on the on the radio with, you know, rock and roll, we need some heavy guitar. So uh, he cranked it to 11, and Revolution is what you hear. You know, the Beatles, it's the conflict that makes the great music. There you go. Uh, that's what they said, too, about Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. All right, enough of that history. Uh, let's move on. What a day it's been, because uh, there's really not that much going on, uh, really, when you think about it. And that's probably a good thing, really. Uh, other than, uh, of course, it's Groundhog Day. But even that is coming with some controversy. And, and I guess it makes sense that, you know, if you've got groundhogs scattered across the country, across the continent, really, uh, you're going to have different predictions in different places because the weather's not the same in all, in all the places. So the fact that one groundhog says one thing on one, in one city and says something completely different in, in another, well, of course, because the weather in Calgary isn't necessarily the same as the weather in St. John's on any particular day, let alone at this particular time. So, you know, I guess it's it makes sense. It makes sense if, in fact, you know, none of them agree. And that's really what happened today. That's when they came out. Because one died. Fred is dead, man. Fred is dead. 
yeah, the Quebec groundhog did, uh, didn't make it. It, 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 it. it didn't survive hibernation, they say. So, you know, uh, sees the shadow, doesn't see the shadow, six more weeks of winter, uh, an early spring. What the heck happens when your groundhog dies? Holy jeez, Mom, let's pack up the kids, get the hell out of here. There's a tornado coming. The groundhog, it's neither one or the other. He's dead. Yeah. How, how do you how do you read that? So then they made the school children stand out to see if they could see their shadows. Uh, that's, of course, after they wiped away the tears. All right, here's Global News. Marianne DeMaine on the whole groundhog story from East Coast to West and vice versa. It's time for Wyatt and Willie's prediction. In the midst of the coldest temperatures we've had in years, a lot was riding on Wyatt and Willie's Groundhog Day prediction. Willie didn't see his shadow. And After much suspense, Willie did not see his shadow. And that means it'll be an early spring. I think early spring will be okay. All right, Sam. But before you start thinking about warmer days ahead, turns out not all furry prognosticators were on the same page today. Shubanakity Sam in Nova Scotia came out and did see her shadow. So Sam's prediction, not an early spring, rather six more weeks of winter. Punxsutawney Phil, ladies and gentlemen. South of the border, Punxsutawney Phil agreed with Sam. He saw his shadow too and also predicts another six weeks shivering in the cold. Not great news as we remain gripped by a polar vortex with temperatures expected to plummet even more on Friday into the weekend. I just hope it's not too cold and it's like today. Now, if you don't trust the groundhogs, how about a lobster? Nova Scotia's Lucy the Lobster crawled out of the ocean this morning. Her prediction, winter is here to stay, at least for another six weeks. So who do you trust, the lobster or the groundhogs? And which one? Well, we've got some cold days sheltering inside to think about it. I think it's kind of silly myself. I think we should listen to Wedderman. Marianne Demain, Global News. All right, on that note... Um in a peer-reviewed study by the American Meteorological Society, researchers at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario, found groundhogs are, quote, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, no better at predicting spring's arrival than flipping a coin. Notice that they didn't say instead of the weather, because no, no, the weather prognosticators, they're on. They're most of the time, they're right. This is flipping a coin. So, boy, I'm glad they told us that, because I was putting quite a bit into that. Now, what about Lucy the Lobster? Where's that going? Especially since Lucy uh, said there's going to be six more weeks of of, uh, of winter. I'd say Lucy's got about six more minutes before she's in the pot and served at the table tonight. With the parents saying, dang lobsters, they don't know anything anyway. Let's eat. So there you have it. Uh, Groundhog Day, mixed bag across the country, depending upon uh, where you are. Uh, here, Wyerton Willie. Uh, agreed with Alberta's uh, uh, Blazak Billy. I thought it was Balzac Billy. Anyway, uh, in an early spring, for this neck of the woods, uh, anyway. In Quebec, I don't know. Um, time to find a new groundhog, I guess. All right, last night, Ward 7 Councillor Esther Pauls pushed to lift the current vaccine policy for city employees that only apply, applies to new hires. Uh, the city's universal policy was uh, paused last September. New hires need only show proof of two doses rather than the regular uh, vaccination as new variants of the COVID-19 emerge. Uh, Paul's motion held exceptions for paramedics, long-term care, and daycare staff. The motion was defeated 8-0. 
to 7. Following debate at the General Issues Committee, any follow-up vote where the outcome uh, could be reversed will take place at February 8th Council meeting. To talk more of all of the, about all of this, Esther Paul's Ward 7 Councillor and is with us now. Esther, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Glad to so how, uh, how do you... Thanks so much for taking the time. How do you explain this? Because, uh, you know, there is a policy, and we all remember during the early stages of of the vaccination and, and where we went with mandatory vaccine and so on and so forth, uh, a lot of things have evolved since then, including the variants and our, our vaccination and our immunity and such. Uh, it's a lot different uh, ball game now than it was in, in certainly in the first wave of this. Um, what are the city's reasons for keeping this? And, and you know what? Maybe we're dev- delving in too deep right here at the beginning. So let's start with with the beginning. And what is your concern about this? My concern is, first of all, our city, city of Hamilton, prides itself of being equitable and inclusive. And I even asked our HR, are we inclusive? And she said, no, we're not. And I want to tell you that, like you said, things have evolved. Vaccinated people, non-vaccinated people spread. So we're not keeping anybody safe except yourself when you get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yep. We lifted that policy. The province lifted the, prob- uh, the, the, the policy. And I want to tell you something. I checked Toronto, Ottawa, Mississauga, uh, Windsor. They not only lifted the policy, they hired everybody that they fired. And I want to tell you, we were lucky that we did not fire them because we realized that the cost. So I cannot understand why council wants to keep this policy ongoing. Who are we protecting? So what are the reasons for that? Because many will say, especially in the old days, you got to follow the science. Well, that's what the science says, and why aren't we following it? Exactly. And few of them said, oh, I need some more information. What kind of information do you need? Uh, Hmm. I look at council, some wear masks, some don't. What information, freedom of choice has always been my policy. And when we cannot reason uh, why these people cannot get a job when we're short, and they're saying, oh, only five people uh, we turned down. Well, how many more people look at the policy and say, I can't apply there? We Hmm. need good people. And if, uh, you know, we can't say how many people are applying and or how many people are looking and say, I don't want to work for the city. They have mandatory COVID-19. And the last thing I want to say that does not make sense, uh, and I'll tell you, you know what, I don't care what people say. I only have two, and it's been two years. Mine, it's like I am not vaccinated unless I get the, another booster and another booster every six months. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to take booster after booster. So in my opinion, freedom of choice, it does not make sense. You know that even our City um, uh, chief officer, uh, medical officer said, it's, you could get it if you're vaccinated or not. And you know how we could prove it? Look at our nursing home. They're all vaccinated, four, five. You can't even go in if, unless you have three. And they're getting it. So yeah, how no, are we yeah. keeping people safe? So. No, we are certainly at a very, very different place in this pandemic than we sure. were at the beginning. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm boosted everything. I'm, I'm fully supportive. Yeah. But, uh, you know, again, this just does not seem to be following the science. It doesn't seem to be following the science. And here's the other issue, uh, Esther, is like, this is just for new hires. Is this even legal? I mean, are they worried they're going to get into legal issues here? I know. 
it's wrong, of course. Somebody says, you know, I want to get what work. I'm willing to work, and they are refusing me to even interview me. I don't know if it's legal or not. I guess if that's our policy, you do not apply. Uh, but uh, you know what one reason was? It's the messaging. If we uh, tell people um, that we could hire without being vaccinated, the message is that you don't have to be vaccinated. And I said, Toronto, they still say, get your vaccination. But they yeah. left the policy. So our message is just say, if you believe, get vaccinated. That's our message. But um, do, do you uh, do you think this creates more issues than it solves? Of course it does. There's division. I know there's division. I know people call me all the time. People that work there, even though they are vaccinated, they, it, it talks it. I'm sorry. It is. And I think we should lift this policy. And you know what, Scott? We always, always seem to follow Toronto. And at this time, we don't want to follow Toronto. What Toronto does, we look at it. This time, Toronto lifted everything and rehire, and we are not willing to look at that because of messaging. They have more uh, uh, COVID cases, and they lifted it. So why are we doing this uh, policy? For me, it's not inclusive, and it's not equitable. So the only real reason they say for doing it, because you can't use the excuse, follow the science, because that's not what the science is suggesting. Um, it, 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 they say they need more information. When will they have that information? What sort of information are they looking for that they don't have? Well, they're saying because new council, they know more information. You know, I put that, this uh, motion back in December. They could have had a whole month, December, January, February, two months to ask our medical uh, chief officer, Elizabeth. They could have asked her. They could have had information. A couple of the counselors, I give them credit. They took the information. They looked at it and they said, yes, it doesn't make sense. Why are they still waiting for more information? I have no idea. But my main point is this, and if people are hearing me, first of all, if you're vaccinated or not, you could spread. So how are we protecting? I could go grocery shopping. I could go to football games. Mm-hmm. I do not ask if they're vaccinated or not. So this policy makes no sense. And that's what makes people upset. And that's why I'm fighting for it. Because if the city is equitable, if the city is inclusive, then do it. Then say it and listen so- this will be re- this will be uh, talked about again February eighth. What do you think is going to happen there, Esther? We've only got a few seconds left. I'll, I'll quickly tell my points again and hope that one of the councillors changes their mind. I'm trying to get a you know to talk to the mayor. I'm trying to do the best, but that's where it's at. February eighth, and then if not, I'll revisit it again. So, Esther Paul is with us, Ward Seven Councillor. Thanks for joining us, Esther. Be well. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings getting another Juno nod this week and uh, also Junk House on vinyl, uh, not to mention Lee Harvey Osmond or Beautiful Scars. I mean, there's lots to talk about every time we bring in Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist, and musician. The business card is getting longer every day. Tom, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
Scott, I'm feeling pretty good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing God, very I'm well. Pretty good too. <laughs> Always. Uh, first of all, congratulations on another Juno nomination with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Saw the tour when it was here in Hamilton, as usual. Uh, put on an incredible show. What is it like for you? Uh, you know, this thing that started as a one-off. Now you're getting another Juno nod. Well, it was a one-off. I mean, we recorded the first record, uh, uh, dedicating uh, the album uh, and all of our efforts to the songs of our friend Willie P. Bennett in 1996. And uh, I shook hands with everybody. I was going to make a movie down in Costa Rica. I shook hands with everyone and got in a car and headed to the airport. And I thought, well, that was great. And that was 1996. We didn't uh, expect to be doing one concert in two for 27 years. So I'm exhausted, Scott. <laughs> All right. That being said, uh, junk house, let's move on to another project from your past. Uh, and it's, and coming out on vinyl. What is this all about? I wish I knew. Um, I have, I mean, uh, I made three records, uh, with junk house for Sony music, Columbia records. And, uh, of course, you know, when 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 corporations, major labels, or any business is done in that uh, in that level, it's a, a big celebration. You know, you got candles and you get a cake and you get funny hats and everybody celebrates. You know, signing a contract. But when the deal ends, nobody really. There's no candles, Scott. There's no cake. <laughs> there's nothing. You just basically disappear. So this is uh, thirty years. Uh, thirty years uh, this year. Uh, the first album, Strays, came out. And uh, Sony decided to uh, release it on vinyl for Record Store Day, coming up, I guess, in the spring more. But uh, it's coming out because, I mean, that was an album that, you know, we were a bunch of knuckleheads from Hamilton, mm. and we were getting on planes and uh, private jets, and we were, we were acting like Led Zeppelin there. But it, it was a real... A real head shaker, man, because uh, we went from playing uh, the gown and gavel in the Cork Town to, uh, you know, playing castles in England with Oasis and uh, and touring, you know, with everybody from Hull to uh, uh, Bob Dylan, you know, in Europe. I'd wake up in a hotel room and uh, MTV would be on in the room and uh, there would be me and Junkhouse on MTV. So. Yeah, uh, you know it, it, that was quite a trip. But that uh, that era died, and uh, the record uh, sold you know hundreds of thousands of records. And I guess that uh, it coming out on vinyl would be good. Oh, my son just picked up the first Juno I ever won for Junkhouse. So there you go. So uh, and I remember because I remember I was at, at Y ninety five at the time when you guys were breaking, and the fact that you had been signed to that Sony deal, it was a major thing. I mean, a lot of people were talking about it. It was a huge deal. So all of this happens now, three years in, three years out, whatever. And did, do they tell you you're going to get the Junkhouse on vinyl, or does it just you sort of find out. Well, no, no, no. They 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 told us, and uh, yeah. I mean, it was re it's been remastered, and uh, the original engineer uh, from the album, who is now the president of Sony Music Publishing, uh, he worked on uh, the remastering, sent it to the guy, the right guy, and it's uh, I've heard it, I've got it here, I got the test pressings. Sounds like a junkhouse record to me. <laughs> That's great. So. What follows that? Anything? Is it just junk house on vinyl and that's it? Or will there be a tour? Will there is well, a sparking interest? What's happening? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to be touring, uh, but we do show, you know, we do about three shows a year still as junk yeah. house. And 
I don't know. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll put some shows together to celebrate this album coming out. Because uh, you know what? Even if I even if I take myself out of the equation and listen to that record, man, it's a great sounding record. Dan uh, Malcolm Byrne did a fantastic job mm. working with us. We were a band that hadn't made a record. Any recordings we ever made, we paid for ourselves, just like everybody else does now, yeah. and I do now. But back then, there was a big budget, and there was uh, food delivered to the studio, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, if we were living it up. What do you want me to say, Scott? Oh, and, that's uh, great. Uh, so where we'll be touring, I don't know. But this summer, I know Blackie is back out this summer uh, on tour doing festivals, and we have uh, Daniel Lanois and Tara Lightfoot joining our band. So we're going to be doing uh, right wow. now a show in Saskatoon, and we're also playing with Robert Plant and Alison Krauss in Ottawa uh, in July. So you know what? I'm still going out there. That's amazing, and it's fascinating, too, uh, playing with Alison Krauss and Robert Plant. That's a neat combination as well, and to be on that bill, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. It's a big festival. It's a big uh, uh, blues festival, I guess, you know. So Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, a truly a Hamilton show. Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. You know, I'm from Hamilton. The band started in Hamilton. Daniel Lanois, a Hamilton, you yeah. know, musical icon. Tara Lightfoot, another Hamilton. Immense talent. So uh, it's a pretty good show that I think we're putting together. All right, so what else is going on? What else do you have time to do? I mean, do you, do you, st- do you still have time for the art? Are you making movies? What's going on? Okay, well, the documentary came out last year at Hot Docs, and it did really well, and it's mm-hmm. uh, on TBO. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I, don't, I don't know the movie business, so I guess everything's good there. Um, I, I, am, I do make time for everything. I mean, I live to create. Uh, I don't want to sound corny, but... Uh, so my residential school exhibit was in Stratford uh, last year. It's going to be going. Uh, it's now going to be going around with the Downey Windjack Foundation. I'm writing my second book for Penguin Random House, and uh, we've written and uh, started to go into rehearsals for a play that will be launching in uh, 2024. And how's the family doing? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the family's fantastic. I was over. Uh, getting my three grandsons uh ready for school this morning so well one of them is just uh, actually walking he's uh sam is not a year old yet but uh the other two boys are uh, uh you know they're, they're going concern man all right catching up with tom wilson and uh always busy uh including junk house coming out on vinyl blackie and the rodeo kings getting another job for a uh, nod for a juno nomination and heading back out on the road and of course uh beautiful scars you can see it now tom as always great to have you here great to hear the successes continuing with uh, blackie and the rodeo kings another juno nod that never hurts congratulations okay well thank you for having me on scott and be well when there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked about this at length, and perhaps the tone is now finally changing on this. The official opposition called on the federal government on Monday to ban research partnerships with Chinese military scientists and issue a ministerial order to advise provinces and Canadian universities to do the same. The Globe and Mail recently reported the Canadian Canadian universities have conducted extensive research with China's military since about 2005, saying that on Monday, joint projects with China's National University of Defense Technology 
technology included research uh, on things like space science and quantum crypt, uh, crypto, uh, crypto, <laughs> all kinds of weird things. Uh, some of the Chinese military scientists who were involved are experts in missile performance and guidance systems, uh, mobile robotics, and automated surveillance. Should we be concerned? Should this be going on? Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Uh, good to speak to you. Should we be concerned? Hell yes. We've talked about this before at length, Charles, and nobody seemed to care about this. Has the tone changed? We've certainly heard the Prime Minister uh, addressing China in different terms. Uh, is this is this shifting now, is it, or is it just talk? I think there's a shift. I mean, yesterday in the House, there was a unanimous vote to bring in 10,000 Uyghurs from Turkey to prevent them from being sent back to to Chinese territory where they would be subject to incarceration. You know, the prime minister voted yes on that one. It's encouraging. I think there's a change. The main problem with this university thing is that nobody seems to be able to tell universities what they ought to do beyond when they're receiving funding directly from the feds. You know, they have the Engineering and Science Research Council and those grants are being uh, reviewed if the universities send them to the feds for review. But, you know, universities have a mandate to create and disseminate knowledge. They want refer, uh, research funds. They don't have a mandate for national security. And if some Chinese agency or China-associated agency offers them money and opportunities, they're only too happy to take it. And, you know, the response to the Globe and Mail article by the universities who've been called out on this you know, a, a traitorous is that that's a too strong a word, but, mm. you know, highly suspect activity of collaborating with the Chinese military basically blow it off and say, you know, nobody told us there's anything wrong with it. And we're going to keep doing it as long as uh, nobody stops us. So, you know, it's time for the government to initiate legislation and take this seriously because we shouldn't be enabling the Chinese military when it looks like we could be involved with a war over Taiwan uh, not too long from now. And obviously, this is financially beneficial to the universities. Have Canadian universities become too dependent on the the mass amounts, the money that do come in from uh, these sorts of Chinese interests? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as as we know that the universities are gaining a lot of um, of uh, financial resources from the high fees charged to foreign students. Uh, a lot of them, particularly in the university sector, are from China. And the Chinese regime has made it clear that, you know, if uh, we don't collaborate with what China wants, they can just readily um, withdraw their students. A few years ago, they they withdrew accreditation of degrees from the University of Calgary over something to do with the Dalai Lama, if I remember correctly. So the universities are very, very cautious in doing anything um, that would raise the ire of the Chinese embassy. And I think this kind of thing, like cracking down on research collaborations, is part of it. And there's also the issue that, you know, there are people inside universities who are favorable to China who say, oh, well, you know, any of these restrictions are just racist uh, discrimination yeah. against people from China. <laughs> I know. Well, I know. you know, we've got to put this aside and get serious about protecting Canadian security and sovereignty and, and our alliance with like-minded allies who are similarly concerned about China's global expansion plans.
it seems the Chinese Communist Party does have a tendency to play the race card whenever they get backed into a corner. Is this just not simply a national security issue, Charles? Are there not national security guidelines here, what you can and cannot do? I'm sure there are for what industry can do. Why not universities? Or are there? Well, they're not strong enough. You know, really, we need to have like stronger legislation with regard to the transfer of sensitive technologies to agents of a Chinese state. And so far, the Canadian government has not been willing to bring our relevant legislation up to the standards of other countries like Australia, Britain, U- U.S., so that you know, if we decide to give priority to this matter and put the RCMP on it, that we can successfully make prosecutions. You know, we talked about this case over in Hydro-Quebec of someone who is alleged to have transferred battery technology to uh, the Chinese state. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that we're going to get a conviction on that one because just because we don't seem to be taking it seriously enough in terms of having laws that will be enforceable to make people who are doing this kind of thing accountable in law and put into prison if you know if they if they're prepared to to take the risk of flouting it can canadian universities unwind themselves from their dependency on uh, on the chinese communist party and the money they receive well, they have to, you know, I mean, like you, you found this source, uh, it's uh, it's threatening our security. It's time to say, well, we're just not going to do the collaboration with the Chinese military university anymore. And those people that were pretending not to be um, agents of the Chinese military who are working in our labs should be sent home right away. Um, and we have to find other sources, you know, diversify our foreign student um, intake, uh, seek other funding opportunities. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, I'm with you that it's a problem for the universities, but it's one that they they simply have to address mm-hmm. by coming up with other sources of revenue or cutting back on their programs. But selling out our national security to, to benefit the bottom line of universities and keep the professors in those generous salaries and build those new beautiful buildings. It just doesn't make sense. Seems like low-hanging fruit. Uh, Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Good to speak with you. All right. A team of researchers working out of McMaster University say they have found a link that shows having a greater number of truly bad experiences as a child can speed up biological aging. You know, I've wondered about this when you see kids of war, whether it's Afghanistan or even what people in Ukraine are going through. How does this affect you uh, long term? Not only mental health, but now, obviously, when it comes to uh, aging. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Divya. Uh, Joshi with us, PhD Research Associate, Academic Department of Health, Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you, Scott. Um, thank you so much for having me on. So, uh, obviously, we can see how this would affect, uh, affect mental health. Uh, you know, my mother grew up during the war uh, and, and you know, talks, used to talk of stories of running to the bomb shelter in the middle of the night. And you, My goodness, how that must have traumatized, uh, you know, anybody that has to go through that sort of thing. Mental issues, one thing, but aging, how do you explain that? Um, yeah, so um, our our study actually looked at the impact of early life adversity, uh, which 
included things like experiencing physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, yeah. uh, living in an environment mm-hmm. um, that had household adversity, and its association with biological aging. Um, and and so what we found is that children or participants who have experienced a greater number of adversities actually are biologically older compared to their actual chronological age. Is that something to do with in situations like that, you need to survive, survival instincts kick in, therefore um, you grow up faster? Uh, So biological aging is basically um, how old is your biology um, as a result of the trauma that you've experienced. So in in many ways, it is assessing uh, the biological and the physiological dysregulation that you may have accumulated over the life course uh, as a result of your um, adversity in childhood. So would this be linked to stress then, Um, the fight or flight sort of mentality? Correct, yes. So it would be linked to uh, toxic and chronic stress that you would have experienced mm. uh, in early years of life. Uh, how do you measure this? So in, in our study, we measured childhood adversity using a self-reported questionnaire where participants recalled their exposure before the age of, of 16. And, and for biological aging, we actually assessed um, or we calculated what we call DNA methylation uh, epigenetic clocks, uh, which actually measures methylation at various uh, CPG sites along the DNA. Um, and it provides us with this uh, aggregate measure of the biology of, of your body. Would this, would you then assume, doctor, that these people that are experiencing this would have a shorter lifespan? It, it is possible. There is evidence that shows that individuals who have an accelerated biological aging um, have a higher risk of many age-related diseases, a higher risk of uh, poor physical and cognitive decline, as well as higher risk of, uh, of mortality. Uh, this is a series of ongoing trauma as opposed to one sort of specific event. Is that accurate? It, so in in some cases, it would be chronic stress, but in other cases, it could be accumulation of different forms of stressors um, that you have that you have been exposed to in childhood. So it is likely that they they may have um, accumulated other stresses along the way. Uh, but in our study, we only looked at exposure to early life event and its impact on later life uh, health outcomes. So how would this affect the individual? Give us an example. So while we didn't specifically in this study uh, look at anything beyond epigenetic age, we do know that individuals that have a higher or greater exposure to childhood adversity go on to having greater number of chronic conditions, age-related mm. diseases, cardiovascular disease, respiratory conditions, uh, cancers, uh, musculoskeletal disorders, and so on. They've also shown decline in their physical and their cognitive function. Um, and we know that they have a higher risk of experiencing a poor quality of life, um, reporting uh, loneliness, mental health issues, um, and overall, a higher risk of overall mortality. 
Can you reverse this, especially if you get it early enough? Uh, is this something you can you can counsel out of? Uh, so there is some very preliminary evidence that shows that DNA methylation um, can be reversed. Um, however, I, I you know I do want to emphasize that interventions are important, but we really need to understand how these epigenetic clocks work. Uh, what are they measuring? What aspect of biological aging are they measuring? Um, and, and once we have that understanding, we can develop interventions to, to reverse or slow down uh, biological aging. Having said this, I, I do want to say that, you know, our, our results do show an association between exposure to childhood adversity and biological aging. And so, interventions or strategies that increase awareness of childhood adversity and their long-lasting consequences across the life course, uh, interventions that support positive parenting, um, those that promote healthy child development, uh, overall improves overall quality of the household environment, and so on. I think that those type of interventions would definitely help in in preventing some of the negative consequences of early life uh, adversity on later life health outcomes. Dr. Divya Josie with us, PhD Research Associate, Academic Department of Health uh, Research Methods, Evidence and Impact, McMaster University, a team of researchers at Mac working, finding a link that shows greater number of trauma stresses uh, early in life can speed up biological aging. Fascinating issue. Doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. In a new release from the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington, says its current inventory levels throughout the market area are comparable to what we saw pre-pandemic. Things have uh, settled down a little bit. And uh, if you're buying a house pre-pandemic, it's pretty much the same post. Uh, let's ask Lou Piriano, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington, and with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good morning, sir. Yeah, or good evening, sir. I should say we're so, great. Uh, we've got some really good news, I think, in the uh, report that you received. Um, for example, uh, for the first time in ten months, uh, there was a uh, an increase in prices from the previous month in uh, January of uh, twenty three over December. And uh, I also note that uh, supply for first time buyers is looking better because. Uh, there is an increase in inventory, particularly in price ranges under 800000 So that represents a shift in the market that may indicate there is a stability uh, continuing. And of course, this is in the face of still rising interest rates, which we do anticipate will soften. So um, yeah, some, some great news in this report. So this means, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you were buying or you were looking for a home uh, back prior to the pandemic, uh, compared to now, the choice is pretty much the same. The the amount that you're going to see, the the availability is about the same. Is that accurate? That that that's the idea. Yeah. Um, you know, days, and it really depends on location, right? There there may be, you know, a much greater supply in one location than another. So the sales to listings ratio in one area or the number of properties or the number of the length of time it takes to sell in certain areas varies widely and you're sick of hearing it, but I'm going to say it anyway, you know, call one of our members from the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington to guide you through this because averages will kill you. Uh, averages have uh, two problems. Uh, one are they don't necessarily represent any particular 
actual physical buildings because they are averages. And mm -hmm. number two, they're always historical in nature. They tell you what happened yesterday. They don't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. And our job being out there talking to folks every day is we hear things like, well, you know, we're uh, we're having a child. We're going to expand. We're going to a bigger house and so on and so forth. And so over time, over a period of maybe a month or more, the flag doesn't just go up saying, hey, the market is changing. It's these little increments that we are attuned to that we see coming down the road that are going to make a difference in maybe, you know, 30 to 90 days. And that's take what I call taking the temperature of the market. So don't get hung up on the averages. Call somebody and, and relay your situation and what you want to get done and get some advice. All right. That being said, Lou, what do you say to people like the news department who've sent me a question? What is the average price of an attached home in Hamilton? What's the average price of an apartment style home or I guess condo in Hamilton? What do you say? So the, the um, one, one thing we found out about uh, apartments was that uh, they seem to be holding very strong on their prices. There was only a 1% decrease from January 22nd of 22 until now compared to an almost 20% in some areas of the detached market. Uh, so in terms of what's the average price, it depends where you go, you know, how many bedrooms, Burlington, Hamilton, wherever. So that's that statistic doesn't really mean anything. Um, and Lou, however, this is hard. This is hard to I'm compare. Gonna, I'm going to give you the, what you asked for. If you don't no, mind. go ahead. No, Bench, please do. Ben, benchmark prices in Hamilton: semi uh, detached uh, 801, semis 710, and uh, apartments 476. Uh, it's pretty hard to compare from year to year, even month to month, when we've been going through what we've been going through, especially last year being the anomaly that it was. Is that accurate? It's hard to compare, I'm sorry, from year over year, did you say? Yes, because we've gone through a pandemic and the market's just been all over the place. Well, you know, in 2017, when the market was great for sellers, I was telling them that, you know, you might you might want to think about getting that property on the market right now. And in 2018, it slowed down. In 2019, it continued slow until the pandemic hit, until CMHC told us that uh, prices were going to decrease by 20%. In fact, they went up 20%. So they had a 40% margin of error. This is the problem in trying to time the market. Uh, mm. It doesn't work in stocks or in real estate. As I said, just get some advice and, and find out what's going on in real time. And if you have a need now, figure out what you need to do now. Don't worry about what it was last year or what it might be in two years from now. Uh, at the end of the day, um, is there really hot times, cool times in the sense that if you need a home and you got to move or you're thinking of it, uh, you're doing your research, you, you know, you're going to do it when you need to do it, when you have to do it, when you can do it, aren't you? Sure. So in the spring, for example, traditionally, it's been our top market and then the fall yeah. second in line. And but you know what? Uh, and people will say, well, maybe that means there's less houses on the market or sorry, less houses to choose from in the spring. No, because the listings are also usually greater in the spring. So it tends to balance itself out uh, as time goes on. And uh, yes, yeah, so if you need to move, you need to move. You're right. Uh, right now, prices are low. If you can figure out how to buy now and then maybe get a variable rate mortgage or a short-term mortgage. And then when the interest rates come down, you'll have the benefit of buying cheaper and getting the mortgage cheaper eventually as your rate comes down. And many have said that, that, um, you know, interest rates obviously going up now, but they're not going to stay up forever and, and not to lock in for too long on anything because you do may or you may want that flexibility in the future. 
Yeah, you know, that's a personal decision. Some people yeah. say, hey, you know what? I just, I can't stand the idea of a variable rate. But I can tell you that back in the late 70s, early 80s, I had people when interest rates were 21% for a five-year mortgage saying, oh, I got to lock in now until they go higher. Yeah. Clearly not a good idea and a bit of a panic. So once again, your realtors, mortgage brokers, and so on can give you advice on that and show you some alternatives where maybe you get a variable rate, but it has the option to lock in. Lots of options out there. And this is one of those purchases, Lou, that, you know, even an educated consumer, of course, but you need a pro helping you with this. Well, I certainly do when I'm out there. Uh, I I just, you know, when you you see things like people not consulting an expert, you think to yourself, well, if you had a sickness, if you were said that, if it was said that COVID was in a particular state, would you wait until, you know, going to your doctor to see when the averages come down? No, you go right now when you need the help. Information is king. Lou Perriano with us, president of the Real Estate Association of Hamilton Burlington, uh, reporting that current inventory levels throughout the market area are comparable to what they were prior to COVID-19. Lou, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, sir. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've certainly heard lots of uh, McKinsey and Company and uh, the role of consulting firms in the government. Dominic Barton's appearance yesterday uh, at a committee, uh, he, he was basically roasted uh, on uh, on the hot seat trying to answer questions. Uh, former global manager, uh, managing director of McKinsey and Company, says he had no involvement with the federal contracts awarded to the firm in recent years, insisted to members of parliament uh, that he and uh, the prime minister were not friends, and he said, Sad to see continued insinuations about his relationship with the federal liberals. His comments come as a House of Commons committee pushes ahead with a study of McKinsey's work for the federal government, prompted by reports that highlight a rapid increase in the value of these contracts uh, with Ottawa under uh, the Prime Minister's tenure. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, he's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. you so we certainly saw Dominic Barton get roasted yesterday, um, and, you know, um, I guess and rightly so, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Duff. Can you blame the consultant for doing a job that the government has asked it to do rather than blaming the government for asking a consultant to do it? It seems like this, in some cases there was a lot of politics going on and, and, um, and, and trying to take it out on Dominic Barton. Am I being too easy on him? Um, no, well, depends what job you're talking about. Um, the, uh, the job of serving on a, uh, task force, uh, and chairing an economic council advising the finance minister, Dominic Barton did that, um, for the, uh, proverbial dollar a year salary, but, uh, McKinsey uh, staff were providing support to that council. And that's a mixing of the public and the private sector that should never happen. If it's a government task force, it should be a government task force. And Democracy Watch actually filed a uh, complaint with the Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commission at the federal level about that task force, about how they were essentially getting security clearance and you know direct access and becoming part of the finance department and then all being able to just leave and lobby the finance department on behalf of clients and try and get government contracts. So building this 
this unethical inside relationship that should never be allowed to be built. Um, and the conflict of interest provisions were really self-enforcing uh, with no one really watching. The ethics commissioner refused to look at it. And um, that's the kind of relationship that it has to be stopped because it can then lead to decisions that favor those private companies that help the government. And the government then scratches their back in return by handing them contracts. And, and that's the appearance of a conflict of interest that we see in this situation and also with other uh, firms that the committee is, is now likely to look at, other comp- consulting companies. What did you learn from Dominic Barton's uh, appearance yesterday? Anything that you didn't know? What stood out for you? No, nothing really. Um, he, uh, of course, said he wasn't a friend of Trudeau. He was just had a professional relationship with him. Um, that's not, I mean, that is a big issue if he was a friend. Uh but he went on to leave McKinsey, and the contracts have continued and grown since he left. And the real issue is, you know, did McKinsey do this favor with this economic council for the government? And then the government kind of got tied in with McKinsey and just started to favor it as well. And the, the spending rules and the contracting out rules at the federal level and across the country are not strong enough to prevent this uh, this kind of thing from happening, this kind of favored status for one or another firm. Uh, they are actually designed to uh, be able to hand out contracts quickly in a lot of cases and allow, allow firms to get this kind of favored status. And the question is, is the favored status based on good work or is it based on who you know and who, you're, who you have connections with in the government? Um, at one point, um, uh, Dominic Barton uh, sort of, it appeared like he was taking this personally and, and he was upset that considering all the work and service he had done for the country, uh, to be treated like this, those are my words. Um, you know, he seemed put off by that. Is that just a distraction? Well, I mean, he is, um, he did volunteer to help share this economic council, but governments should not be getting into relationships with people like that because it looks like, hey, this guy is rich. He can afford to work for $1 for the federal mm. government. Yeah. And then the federal government starts handing more and more contracts out to his former company. And that smells. If you're going to have a government task force, pay people to be on it, make a merit-based choice as to who is on it. There weren't any representatives from labor or nonprofit uh, watchdog groups over government spending and, and the economy on that task force. They were all business people. And you know, make it a merit-based task force that's actually representative and pay people so that those who uh, can't afford to do it unless they're paid can serve. And don't get into this kind of relationship where it looks like someone's offered you a favor. So now you have a a sense of obligation to return the favor because that's the standard. It has to appear to be on the up and up uh, or the public has a justifiable uh, reason to think it smells. We've only got a few seconds left up. Where do you think this is going? I mean, is this black eye going to continue to grow? Well, uh, we'll see what the committee does next. There has been a... uh, proposal um, by an NDP MP member of the committee to look at the contracts, which are also in the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, to other major consulting firms, Deloitte, Deloitte, Price, Waterhouse, 
Coopers, Accenture, KPMG, and Ernst and Young. And so if they expand it to that, it will become what it should become, which is a, just a broader look at whether handing out these consulting contracts is actually a good way to spend the public's money, given we already have public servants that do most of these jobs that consultants are hired to do. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, the ongoing use of consultants uh, in government. And where's the balance? Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We remember uh, when the prime minister and the premier were at Tefasco, and I remember the prime minister saying, you don't see Russia, you don't see uh, Germany, you don't see uh, China doing this and taking Arcelor, Arcelor, Mittal, Tefasco and turning it into electricity. Immediately, my thought was, well, are we going to have enough electricity for this? Um, and of course, the reason that China and Russia and all the others are doing are doing what we're doing, I guess, is because they don't have Niagara Falls at one end of the lake and a some uh, a nice array of nuclear uh, power stations at the other, and a clean supply of Canadian liquid natural gas uh, to uh, to supply anything if there is a shortfall. Now we're seeing Enbridge Gas has outlined uh, plans before the city, and the city is questioning this. Some councillors, because it goes against their green plan, uh, for a new 14k pipeline to support this transition to green steel making. 12-inch pipe would run north-south across Hamilton, primarily alongside Centennial Parkway, down to the plant. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, and here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great, thank you. Uh, how do you balance this, Marvin? Environmentalists are upset. What do you mean a pipeline? Why can't we be doing hydrogen? What's going on? Electrification wasn't supposed to do this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, first, let's let's go back to the announcement. Uh, at that time, it was talked about green steel, and I think everyone heard that and thought, "Ah, no, no uh, release of anything to the environment." Hallelujah. Well, what we now know is, is that it's greener steel. In other words, we still need some uh, carbon-based uh, fuels to help with this transition. Although much of it is going to be done with electricity. It's natural gas, which burns cleaner and better than coal, which is the current source. And, and so I'm, I'm actually still quite enthused about the transition that's taking place. Yes, it does require to have this pipeline built. They're not asking for the city of Hamilton to pay for the pipeline. All they're asking is for an endorsement of the route, which is primarily along the side of a major highway. It will be buried. It is a foot wide, but you know, keep in mind it's a foot wide. It's not a five foot pipeline or an eight foot pipeline. And once it's buried, you're never going to know it's there. We have other pipelines that are buried. So I, I understand it's not a perfect solution. It is not a zero carbon solution, but anything we can do to reduce that carbon emission. DeFasco is one of the biggest polluters in the province when it comes to releasing carbon dioxide. Anything that reduces that, cuts it in half, cuts it by 75%, I'm in favor. I agree with that wholeheartedly, uh, Marvin. Why not hydrogen? I think it's too early. Um, I'm trying to think of Tony Valeri, who is their uh, vice president of community relations, was asked that question. And he said, we don't think there will be viable quantities of hydrogen available till after 2030. And they want to go and they want to go now. This is what they're getting the funding for. So it might very well be this same pipeline is re reused or repurposed as a hydrogen pipeline by 2030 or 2035. But if we're going to do it in this decade, uh, natural gas is the best way to go. How naive do we have to believe that we can't do this 
by 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 offering this pipeline did, did people honestly believe this was going to be fully green steel i mean like has anybody seen the piles of coal outside these plants like it just seems incredibly naive to me well maybe naive or maybe it's the other side is that we have this tremendous faith in technology you know, we all watch things that develop, whatever it happens to be. You're, you you may have been chatting about this thing, uh, the artificial intelligence that can write books and songs yep. and, and novels. And we go, wow, isn't that incredible what technology can do? So when you have an announcement and somebody says, we're going to get rid of coal and we're going to use electric arc. Okay. You know, we most of us don't know how steel is made in the first place. So therefore, we don't know what the new technology holds. Was it naive? Yes, I think it was a bit naive. Uh, certainly they're going to need some sources. But again, I think I, 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 once we know the details, I don't think we should be afraid of them or scared of them. Uh, we're moving in the right direction. And this is a tremendous step forward for this steelmaking company that is still the backbone of, of Can- and, uh, Hamilton's manufacturing base. And this is, is this any different than removing uh, coal fire power plants from the grid and replacing them with cleaner natural gas? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, Scott, I, I'm an old guy. I'm in my 60s, and, and I can remember days in Hamilton where yep. we had air warnings. Don't go outside. Don't breathe the air. I, at one time, I lived on the mountain. I can remember the haze that kind of hung over the city. And now that we've switched to to other kinds of electrical sources and got rid of the coal, we don't get those days anymore. If I wasn't asthmatic, I would be cheering for these advances. Mm. So... Uh, I realize, again, if you're an environmentalist and zero is your baseline, this isn't going to get you to zero. But I think if we can get three quarters of the way to zero, let's applaud that and yet keep looking. But but let's applaud the fact that we're making some tremendous strides. Um, uh, again, um, wouldn't it make more sense to try and put all of this energy to getting the world off of coal instead of trying to get the world off everything? You know, I remember asking Elizabeth May, why don't we just try to get the world off coal? Too late for that. Too late for that, which is what they said 20 years ago. But if you can't get the world off coal, how do you get them off of everything? Right. And let me turn that around, if you don't mind, Scott. Uh, uh Germany and France, which had been very keen of getting off coal and had got off coal, is actually going back to it now because of the war in Ukraine and having their supplies of things like natural gas disrupted. So I I think it's a great uh, intermediate step. Again, it's not perfect. It's not zero emissions. But whatever we can do to reduce the emissions dramatically, it moves us in the right directions. It's a bit like many people have looked at the electric car as the panacea for everything. You know, even if the electric car, you know, all new vehicles sold in Canada in the year 2030 are electric, that doesn't mean that the accumulated number, we have more cars in Canada than we have people. That means there are roughly 40 to 50 million cars already out there. They're not all going to be scrapped tomorrow. We're still going to be using gasoline-powered vehicles well into the 2040s or 2050s, but it's the transition that we applaud moving in the right direction. Let's get the momentum in the right direction. And I, I, this is why I can back this proposal from DeFasco. I agree 100%. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University, Enbridge, wanting to build another uh, pipeline to uh, supply DeFasco with natural gas during their transition. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. 
All right, uh, Hannah Trofimova and her two kids left Ukraine March 4th, 2022, almost a year ago. Now she is helping Ukrainian families here who face the same grueling choices, settle in the Hamilton area as a newcomer information specialist with the YMCA of Hamilton Burlington's Employment and Immigration Services. Her husband, an information technology specialist, stayed behind in order to help ensure locals still had Internet access. To talk more, uh, Hannah Trofimova is with us now. Hannah, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. I'm fantastic. It's a uh, great honor so- for me to, you know, just to tell anybody my story. Thank you for uh, having me. No, this is an honor for us to hear this story. It's been almost a year now. You're coming up to your year anniversary. Tell us um, what this decision was like for you, especially to leave your husband behind and, and bring the two kids over here. What was that like for you? Probably it was the toughest decision in my life, you know, because I felt as if I betray my husband, that I do something wrong, that I should not do this, I should stay with him. Uh, but he said the kids are more important for us. So our responsibility is to bring kids as far as possible from the war because our kids is the future, not only our future, but the future of our country. So we decided it was just one day decision, you know. Uh, we just made the decision on, uh, uh, Wednesday, you know, on Thursday and on Friday morning we were at the station and next day, Saturday, uh, March 6th, uh, 5th, we were in Lviv, and March 6th, we were in uh, Poland. So it mm. was very quick. I would not say it was easy, because it, it, probably this experience is uh, interesting, let's say Canadian word, you know. But, um, and how old are your kids? Uh, the oldest one is uh, 16, and uh, the youngest is 9. I can't imagine what it must have been like to say goodbye to your husband, to their dad. Yeah, because we did not know uh, will we have a chance uh, to communicate properly. Or And he said uh, goodbye to all of us. Just he wasn't sure that he will be alive in a day or two. So it was pretty terrible. But, you know, we, we had this chance. And uh, by now, every day we communicate via Internet. And even now. Uh, he's supporting me. Uh, when I told him that I'll be in the radio, he he said, "Okay, I'll uh, I'll send you something." And he sent me the music, uh, "Wind of Change" of Scorpions. Uh, just uh, it is our music. We danced first time with him uh, under this music, so it really supported me. So I feel calmer now. Oh my! So how often do you get to talk to him? Uh, every morning and every evening. So that's pretty good. That's not bad. So how are the kids doing here? How are they settling in? They're at schools, and I'd like to say great thank you to uh, Westdale School and to Good Paradise School, because you guys are amazing. All the Canadians are amazing. I'm just, I feel as if I'm in a fairy tale, you know? You're so kind, friendly, helpful. That's, you know, unbelievable. (laughs) So uh, what's unbelievable, too, is you're, you, you know, you've come here and now you're paying it forward by being a newcomer information specialist for the Hamilton Burlington YMCA Employment and Immigration Services. What's that been like for you? Well, that was a miracle because I was recommended uh, to YMCA Hamilton uh, by my first uh, employer in Canada. It was ITS Hamilton. I was an interpreter with them. And they recommended me to Y, to YMCA. Uh, and just, 
I uh, I still don't believe that it, it could happen like this, you know, just, is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. So you're there. Just have your job interview. Yeah, you're fine for us. Okay, just start. And we began. Wow. So what is it like for you, considering you've done all of this, you're living the, this experience to now try to help newcomers that are going through the same thing? Um, are they exactly how you were when you came over? Are the challenges different? What, what, what sort of, uh, how can you help them transition here? Uh, at first, I can give them uh, hope that everything will be fine. So when they come, uh, sometimes they are panicking. But uh, when they're just listening to us, it is not only me. Uh, there are two of us, me and Jessica. She was born here in Canada, but she speaks Ukrainian pretty well. Uh, so we try to persuade them that just step by step, you will be okay. So your confidence here is a great support for Ukrainians there. So if you are okay, you can help uh, another people, other people, and your relatives in Ukraine. They will be, they will feel better to know that you are okay. So we just show them information. We can refer them to English tests and English classes. Uh, so just we we show them everything that they can get here. Uh, not all the time for free, but uh, for uh, doing some attempts. You know, just to be uh, to be sure that if they act, they will have their results. So the more you share, the more you have. Um, what about your husband? Does he have plans to come here? Does he want to stay? Do you guys hope to go back one time, one day? Uh, that's a long story, you know. Uh, he has to stay in Ukraine because he's a man. He yeah. has to defend his country. And uh, our dream is to see Ukraine... Uh, independent and peaceful. Uh, my kids are for sure uh, ready to return back any day. They said that they have to return and to help President Zelensky to restore the country. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, wow. uh, that, that's my idea. That's my idea. I told them that, uh, guys, to uh, help President restore, to restore uh, the country, you, you have to have enough knowledge and skills. So that's why they do their best uh, here at school. So just some kind of parents' motivation. <laughs> so, uh, but their but their ambition one day is to go back and and help Ukraine. Uh, yeah, you never know. I, yeah. Just a year ago, I, I did not know that I'll be in uh, Canada and uh, I'll help another Ukrainians in Canada. Uh, let's say I'm ready to return. I'm ready to stay. I'm ready to move anywhere. Uh, where I have to go. So just I try to leave in the point uh, or on the point that if I if I need uh, to be here, if I have to be here, I will be. If I have to go, I will. So there's no complaining. It's just my way. And what do you find when you meet with people who have come over? What's their biggest challenge? What, what's their, what, what questions do they ask? What, what's their biggest concern when they come here? Uh, first, of course, they they need uh, they need a job and they need uh, accommodation mm-hmm. for sure. And at first, they are stressed with the prices of uh, apartments or a basement or something renting, and then they are uh, shocked, uh, probably uh, how how much they can do. 
to uh, reach some goal, you know. Uh, not how, how much they have to do, but how much they can. So after this uh, couple of weeks doing something, uh, they are surprised that, okay, one uh, of our specialists helped them to find accommodation, another specialist helped them to find a job. Uh, we g- gave him or her information, and oops, they are pretty okay. They have their you... job, they have their English class, their kids are at school, so they are doing well. How do you like your job, Hannah? I adore it. <laughs> I adore my colleagues, they are my friends, they are my another family, my Canadian family. So I, I really enjoy it, because I see I see the smile uh, of a person who came for me with, uh, with tears or just without hope, and when they leave well, we, uh, smiling and just saying thank you, thank you, that's that's amazing, you know? That's fantastic. Hannah Trapamova with us, newcomer information specialist with the Hamilton Burlington YMCA Employment and Immigration Services, helping people do exactly what she did with her two kids when they left almost a year ago uh, to come here and, and, well, I guess just wait and see what happens, whether it's going back or staying here and, and building a life. Hannah, thank you so much for sharing the story. Uh, thank you so much for paying back. My goodness, you can teach us Canadians a lesson uh, by your spirit and what you've done and what you're doing for us here. Thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hannah Trofimova with us, Newcomer Information Specialist uh, with the Hamilton Burlington YMCA. Came over here a year ago and is now helping people that are having the same challenge. Unbelievable, and that is why Canada is truly a great country. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Watch this. The stupid meter is going to spin around so much, the glass is going to blow right off it. And here is another example. And I'm really scared Hamilton has taken one step forward and two steps back with this new council. But anyway, you may remember that uh, the prime minister was in town along with the premier and very, very arrogantly was boasting about how ArcelorMittal de Fasco was going to transition from coal to electricity, which is absolutely fabulous. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And, you know, I remember him so arrogantly saying, you don't see Russia doing that, you don't see China doing this, you don't see Europe or Germany doing this. Well, no, because they don't have the natural resources that Canada does, which is why they're begging for them. They don't have Niagara Falls down at one end of the lake and nuclear plants down at the other, and a clean supply of Canadian liquid natural gas to supplement when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine. And yet there he is. Look, you don't see those guys doing it. Well, no, they don't have the natural resources we do, brat. So now we're finding out that Enbridge Gas has uh, come to the city. They want to build a a foot pipeline uh, down Centennial Parkway to supply natural gas, clean Canadian liquid natural gas to DeFasco to help it get off of coal. And then there's obviously there's some people on city council go, well, that goes against their green plan. We're not building more pipelines. That goes against the green plan. Again, going back to my initial uh, point from a bazillion years ago, why don't we get the world off coal first before we start killing everything? If you can't get the world off coal, how do you expect to get them off of everything? And now here we find, exactly as I suggested, that there will be a natural gas, whether it's supplying flame or electricity, to subsidize, to help DeFasco get off of burning stacks of coal that you see outside the plant. 
and we've got people in city council questioning this? How stupid and naive do you have to be? Well, we were hoping they'd put hydrogen in there. Well, you know what? Get down in your basement there, people on city council, and start working on 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 on, on the transition from hydrogen. Because we've been doing that since about the 1980s with no luck. So if you know something the rest of the world doesn't do, love to hear from you. Oh, wait for hydrogen. Like, oh, my God, how woke do you have to be? You can't even see, you know, the solution in front of your face. Let's bring in Radley. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, I cannot believe that people just thought we were going to run the DeFasco transition off of Niagara Falls and everything would be cool. And if they needed any supplemental energy, it would be coming from hydrogen. I mean, what year are these people in? Well, keep in mind that Hamilton Council, in one of its first hires just days after it took office, hired one of its, I think, highest paid employees when they brought in their new environmental person, Linda Lukasik, who is now... uh, I think, I don't know what I read, how much he's made, but the point is we are, everything is through the prism of green and I'm not anti-green. I'm not urging that we all run our cars at all times just to run up our emissions. But at the same time, there is, and this is not just with our council, this is with anything. If you see things through a very narrow, very, very rigid Al Gore dictated prism, or Greta Thunberg prism. Did I say prison? I meant prism, but it's the same thing. Um, then you are not going to be able to see the forest for the trees because there are places in this world, many places, that are putting out all kinds of pollution into the air with all what they're doing, as you've described. And yet we have the opportunity to make way less pollution if we would give them Canada natural gas. Yeah. But we don't see that because we don't want to do anything that would harm. Well, you actually wouldn't be harming the environment. You'd be helping yes. the environment. But we can't see that because some people say, well, all fossil fuel naturally is bad. Therefore, we can't do it. Okay. But Scott, if you, this reminds me of, you know, every year, uh, through the year, hopefully, but around Christmas, especially, we get those booklets for World Vision or whatever else. And you know what? There are people in parts of the world who have to drink filthy water. They don't have clean drinking water. If we said, we'll give you some, we have some extra water. It's not as clean as our standards, but it's way cleaner than what you're drinking right now. Hmm. Would we not be better off if we can't, if we couldn't afford to send all of our perfectly clean water, but we could really improve their life, even though it may not be exactly the way ours is here, would it still not be way better? Well, and, so and you know, when we could send some of our cleaner natural gas to cut down on all those filthy emissions around the world, would that not be better? Not perfect, but we seem to have been, be, we seem to be demanding perfect or nothing. It has to be perfect or we cannot possibly consider this conversation. And to me, that seems to be defeating the purpose. Let's make it better as we work towards perfect. Uh, Germany, who for the last uh, several decades have been on the cutting edge of renewables, are building coal plants because their supply of Canadian of liquid natural gas has been cut off from Russia. Right. So, right. And, and, and these guys to us asking for help. And I mean, these and these, these guys places. are innovators. They're innovators in renewable, and they're begging for natural gas. And yet, there's some. I just don't get how naive you can be to think you're going to get the whole world off of everything, but you can't get them off of coal. 
How stupid is and, that? And so if we work towards the idea of perfection, I mean, and again, I go back another bad example, perhaps, but a clumsy example, but in what place, in what industry, in what world, in what business do you go from not very good to perfection like that? Yeah, you exactly. work, you gradually yeah. work towards that idea of let's get better and better and better. And as we find more hydrogen possibilities or whatever, then we can wean off more natural gas. But let's get rid of the coal first. Let's get rid of the dirty gas first. Let's and work our way towards that end. But we don't seem to do that. We only want to have the perfect result now, or we can't do anything. And that to me is naive, quite honestly. And naive extremism. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. As always, be well. Hey, and uh, I don't know if you heard this. Leapin' Lanny Poffo just died. Do you know who that is? Who? Leapin' Lanny Poffo, WWF superstar wrestler from the <laughs> 80s. Randy Macho Man Savage's brother. It's a sad day, Scott. I gave up after Haystack Calhoun. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> oh, love him. See ya. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny wrote in to say, So why is it okay for natural gas pipelines to power our green steel, but not to save the economies of Japan or Germany? Yeah! Yeah!